If you're visiting us this morning and I've not had the chance of meeting you, my name is John Sarver. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Baptist Church. We are jumping back into the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, that's page 946, your pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you this morning. John chapter 6. What? Perhaps today or in this season, what do you feel like are your biggest needs? Could be something physical like food or finances or health, something spiritual or relational. It's probably something that occupies quite a bit of your time, your energy, your today, right now. How does it motivate you? To whom or where does it send you? Perhaps you've heard of Abraham Maslow. He was an American psychologist. He put forth what has become a popular theory of motivation and needs in the 1940s. It's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Again, you probably have heard of it. He argued that people are naturally inclined towards self-actualization. That is, people had a very positive view of people. People are motivated to be the best that they can be. But before they are motivated by a need like that, he says there are more basic or fundamental needs that motivate us. Again, you might be familiar with the pyramid at the bottom are physiological needs like food and water. Then come needs like safety and health, followed by needs of friendship and love, then self-esteem, and finally self-actualization. Now, there's something that's intuitive about it and a natural way of thinking. Like, if you don't have day-to-day food, you're probably not thinking about maximizing your potential as a creative or an intellect. So he argues we pursue basic needs first, then we kind of ascend towards higher needs like self-actualization. Now, he was a concept of sin. He was a materialist and a naturalist, meaning he has no conception of God or creation. Man is not body and soul, but a clump of some kind of particles. Only that. This, of course, impacts the way that he understands who we are and what we need. Man, as you see in his scheme, is fundamentally responsible for meeting his own needs. Now, Jesus, of course, has his own theory of needs. As the God who made us, he knows our frame. Who made us body and soul, he knows we have both physical and spiritual needs. As the God who assumed flesh... He knows in a first-hand way, in an experiential kind of way, what it is to have need. He knows that we have physical and spiritual needs. He meets them both, as we'll see in the text. And perhaps quite different from Maslow and common thinking, it's actually the spiritual needs that are more fundamental. It's not to say the physical needs aren't important, but Jesus meets them, and he does so as a means of pointing the people towards a greater need that they have, which is to have life in him. You see, depending on who you think Jesus is will completely change the way that you conceive of your own need and the way that you relate to him. Again, what do you need? What does it have to do with Jesus? What does Jesus have to do with If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 6, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 15. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, 
A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said to him, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus so also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told the disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, he said to them, truly, this truly is the prophet who is coming into the world. Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning is quite simple. God provides for all of his people's needs. God provides for all of his people's needs. You might underscore or underline or circle the all, physical and spiritual, God provides for all of his people's needs, period. In fact, you might think of this as big idea number two, like sub-big idea. An unmet need, it's either not a need at all or God is testing you. He's trying you. If you have an unmet need, it's either not a need, that is, it's a desire or God is testing you. He's trying you. He's giving you the opportunity to rely upon him and his sufficiency. He's withholding for a season something that you need. Again, if it's something that you need, he's going to give it to you. He's withholding it for a season that you might get more of him, the one we truly do need. God provides for all of his people's needs. If you have an unmet need, it's either not a need or God is testing you. We'll split the text into three scenes. To see this, Lord willing, we'll see first heaven's test, then heaven's provision, and lastly, heaven's king. We'll see heaven's test, heaven's provision, and heaven's king. We start with heaven's test, beginning there in verse 1, if you'll look at the text with me. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now John is placing this, and he's showing us what the language is after this. It's after Jesus' second trip to Jerusalem. Now, you'll recall, if you've been with us, what happened there. Two important things. First, Jesus healed a man who had been a paralytic for 38 years. And in doing so, it leads to the second important thing that Jesus does. He reveals himself to be Israel's God and Messiah. And as Israel's God and Messiah, you'll recall, or you could look at it, John 5, 39. You pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet... They are about me. Jesus is going to show us that they indeed are about him. 
He's going to do that through this sign in particular. We'll see that Israel's scripture, her history, her structures, her festivals, the events, the prophecies and prophets, they're all about Jesus. He is, if you know your Old Testament history, he is the true manna from heaven. From heaven, not for himself, but to meet the needs of his people. John wants us to see this. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias as it had become to be called. Verse 2, a huge crowd was following him. Now, this is more than huge. If you look down at verse 10, you'll see it numbered about 5,000 men. Okay, this isn't like a men's conference or a dude perfect show. This is a typical way of counting. So the 5,000 doesn't include women and children who would have been in attendance. Scholars suggest that there could have been upwards of 20,000 people there. So you might think packed Liberty Bowl or FedEx Forum, but at Shelby Farms. Why were they following him? I don't know why that's funny. Why were they following him? John goes on. He says, because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. They're following him because they saw the signs. Now, you recall the book of John, the first half is structured around seven signs. And John tells us in John 20, verse 30, that the book is written, the signs are included in particular, that we would see God. The signs are intended to lead us to saving faith or strengthening faith. We come to and we continue to believe that Jesus is the Christ. But as we've seen, as we'll see again today, they can't create faith. We actually get a glimpse of that at the end. We'll certainly see that later in John 6 when Jesus says, you only came back because your bellies were full. Like you saw the sign, but you didn't see the sun. No doubt some of them are trusting in Jesus, but the majority of them, they've seen the healing signs, and so they're following him. John says multiple signs. At this point in John, we've seen three signs. Recall, first he turned water into wine. It's kind of like the precursor of this meal, the drink for the meal. Secondly, Jesus kept the royal official son from dying. Third, most recently, Jesus healed the paralytic. Now, John tells us plainly in John chapter 21 that there were more signs that Jesus did. John doesn't record them all. He says you could fill the world with books about Jesus. Now they likely have seen or heard about these signs and more. And so they follow him. And again, it's not hard to imagine even thinking about 20,000 people. Prosperity gospel preachers will fill stadiums. And yet they have nothing to offer. 100,000 people went to Coachella just to listen to Harry Styles. (laughs) Okay? Not hard to see 20,000 people gathering to see Jesus, at worst, they get a show, like he's going to heal somebody else. At best, maybe he'll do something for me. Some wanting teaching, some wanting healing, some believing, all of them on some level wanting Israel's prophet and king to come. They've seen the signs and so they gather to follow Jesus. So after Jerusalem, verse 3, Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. John is still like a good writer giving us all the details. He's setting the stage, as it were. And he gives us place and time. Jesus goes up on a mountain. It's from here he's going to feed the people. Now, mountains are especially significant in Scripture. Eden was probably on a mountain. God reveals himself to Abraham on a mountain. He tests Abram on a mountain. He reveals himself to Moses on a mountain. He takes Israel up out of Egypt from slavery to serve him on a mountain. 
He reveals himself then to his people and gives them his law on a mountain. The temple of God then came to dwell on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah and Poplar, right by guesses? No. Oh, different Mount Moriah. After God's departure from Israel, when he leaves the temple, especially in Zechariah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jesus delivers his most famous sermon on a mount. He often retreats to mountains to commune with his father. He's transfigured on a mountain. He's crucified on a mountain. He commissions the church on a mountain. He ascends to heaven on a mountain. Okay, John could have skipped over this. He gives it to us why. Mountains are significant. Especially as places where God dwells or where people meet with God. Now, metaphorically speaking, as you think about language that's used in Scripture, we often hear that um, heaven is above us or God is enthroned above us, metaphorically. So heaven's above us. It's because God rules over all that is created, such that when we look up, we're looking up toward God. Okay, God is not actually in space, living on Pluto, what used to be a planet. <laughs> metaphorically, God is, we lift up our gaze, he is enthroned above the cosmos, you might think of them, and especially where there are temples, as heavenly hotspots in Scripture. Mountains, in this sense, are closer to heaven. Okay? Because we know who Jesus is, the one who's been sent from heaven, when we see mountain, our eyes should be attuned to what's going on. So don't miss the imagery. What we'll see here is the sun descending, coming down from the Father to the people, to the children. We see heaven's shepherd descending to the sheep on the grass. Heaven's bread raining. We see that God meets our needs in Christ. It's also Passover. John tells us, you might just put that in the back of your mind for later. Verse 5. So when Jesus looked up, noticed a huge crowd coming to him. Now presumably, he's probably tired after traveling from Jerusalem, maybe vexed after his conversations with the leaders. And here he sees this crowd coming toward him. I had an especially long week for a number of reasons I'll just give you the kids reasons <laughs> okay this week I don't even know when it was Josie two years old ear infection midweek Jane one year old double ear infection RSV Pavy up all night Friday night crying Saturday double ear infection okay I'm like dodging sickness like Neo <laughs> Jess it seemed like constantly was taking the kids to the doctor to pick up a prescription or something the kids are at home I'm working in the study kids constantly it felt like coming in to me with their needs Time and time again, I responded with irritation, with impatience, with anger. Wait till your mom comes home. Jesus, again, probably tired, wanting to rest. Look at verse 5 again. He looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming to him. Jesus notices them. He sees them. And he's not annoyed by their presence. He's not irritated by their intrusion. He's not overwhelmed by their numbers. He's not anxious about their need. Jesus takes the initiative to feed them. They've not been filing complaints with the disciples. No, Jesus looks, he sees, he knows, he acts. It may seem trivial that they're just hungry there is no need of ours that Jesus does not care about. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that Jesus sees you? 
that he notices you, that he meets all of his people's needs. Our God and King is not above feeding us. Our physical needs are not beneath him. As man, he knows what it is to be hungry and thirsty. He knows what it is to be worn out. He knows what it's like to not have a place to lay his head. He knows what it is to be lonely and hated. He knows what it is to be around anxious people. He sees, he feels, he takes the initiative to care for his people. Don't miss this. God normally acts to meet our needs before we even notice them. Before we even complain to him about them. Home last night, presumably you had health to get here. You'll eat lunch and dinner this evening. You'll breathe over 20,000 times today. Every waking minute of your life up to this point is a testament to the fact that God cares for you and has met every every breath you've ever taken, every crumb on every plate, every drop in every cup, every season of heartache, of sin, and of suffering you didn't think you would make it through. God has met every one of your needs. And ordinarily, God cares for you without you even noticing. But he notices you. He's constantly caring for you. He's not so busy governing the cosmos that he neglects his children. He's not an absent father. His eyes are never not on you. His love is never not set upon you. He's never not eager to meet your needs and to do good to you. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 that if the Father sees the birds and feeds them. Do you not think he sees you and will feed you? If he clothes the lilies, will he not people on a mountain, most of whom did not trust or love him? Do you not think he will meet your needs from heaven? I wonder how many of us are tempted today to think that God has forgotten us or stopped caring about us or has more important things to be worried about or only cares about one part of our life. Perhaps he's only concerned with the spiritual. Brothers and sisters, be reminded from the text today that God made you, that he has redeemed the whole of you, that he cares about all of you. Jesus sees the crowds. He knows they're hungry. He knows they're hungry in particular because they're following him. They've gone out of their way to see him. They're in a remote place it's probably night by now they're hungry because in a sense for him calvin says this christ of his own accord takes care of those who neglect themselves in order to follow him jesus is eager to meet our needs especially matthew 6 33 of those who seek first the kingdom and its righteousness you don't think jesus knows that your hospitality is costly that you end up in a sense with less than you started that your evangelism is costly at work, that your discipleship is costly for your schedule, Jesus is eager, stands ready to meet the needs of his people, especially those who seek first the kingdom. And most often, he meets our needs before we even notice them. He sees the crowds and then he turns to his disciples. You'll see there at the end of verse five, he asks Philip, where will we bundles out? Philip, we don't know why, he's from Generally, the area, maybe he knows of a great falafel place nearby. 
There's this great hole-in-the-wall place that serves fish. Of course, there's no restaurant big enough. There's probably not a village big enough nearby that could feed all these people. But we see to test him. For he himself knew what he was going to do. See, Jesus is not banking on Philip's suggestion. Jesus asked him to test him. Now, if you can remember back to school or perhaps you're still in school, a test reveals something about you to your teacher or reveals something about you to your teacher that your teacher doesn't know. Okay? Your professor or your teacher knows about Roman history or plate tectonics or ochem. You might tell them I have an A's worth of knowledge. They say, well, find out. We'll give you a test. You see, a test reveals what you know to your teacher because your teacher doesn't actually know what you know. This is not how God tests us. God doesn't test us because he's ignorant, because he doesn't know the answer. Like maybe my people are trusting me today. I know how I'll find out a test. Need physical and spiritual. He tests us not to learn something, but so that we would learn something. Okay, think about Philip, or not Philip, but Peter. I would never betray you. I would never abandon you. Okay, a test. Philip learned something about himself. He's not quite as strong as he thought. He also learned something about Jesus, of his mercy and love. Jesus knows not only how he's going to provide, but he knows how Philip is going to respond. The test provides an opportunity for Philip to learn to trust Jesus. Tests give God's people an opportunity to be all the more satisfied in Christ. To have more than one need met. You see, what's better than having a full belly is also a full heart. What's better than having physical bread? It's physical bread and Jesus. And so he tests us that we might get more of him. And again, if it's a need that we really need, unless he's calling us to heaven, he's going to meet it at some point. So he asked Philip to test him. How will we feed all these people? Philip responds, verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. That's basically a year's worth of salary. I don't know, Jesus. It's going to be really expensive. You see, Philip can see the people, and he can see the problem, but he can't see Jesus. 20,000 hungry people in a remote place. He starts doing the kind of math that excludes God from the equation. We just don't have enough. There isn't a way. He sees the people, he sees the problem, but he doesn't see Jesus. Philip, what about Jesus? Things were created. John 1, 3, by him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, 2, by his word death already stopped at Capernaum. By his word a man was healed in Jerusalem. You already saw him turn water into wine in Cana. Philip, what about Jesus? Israel's God and Messiah stands before you. What about him? Often we see the problem, but we do not see Jesus. God knows this, and so he puts us through a trial. What we get on the other side is more of Jesus. And oh, by the way, he comes through with our need if we really need it. Food on the plate, strength for another day, a place to lay our head. If we have an unmet need, it's either because it's not a need or because God is testing us. He always gives us something better, which is Christ. Maybe thinking Jesus can forgive our sins, but he can't actually help me overcome this habit. 
His word is good to memorize, but it's not sufficient to deal with my anxiety or my eating disorder. Jesus cares about me to get to heaven, but he doesn't care about my home or where I will sleep. He nourishes my soul, but he doesn't care about whether or not my family will have food this evening. In love, Jesus tests us. He puts us through trial so that he can bring us to himself. The only one who is sufficient to meet our every need. And brothers and sisters, know that God does not test us or treat us like lab rats. The Father tests us like a father, the Son like one of our brothers. He cares for us. He knows our frame because he made us. Ordinarily, he gives us what we need when we need it, before we even think to ask. Sometimes he tests us to give us what we really need, which is more of himself. Okay, how are we going to feed these people? I just don't see how it's possible, Jesus. On the other side of the test or the trial, Philip will have participated in the miracle. He himself will have eaten, and he will come to see and savor in Christ the Savior. That's not cruelty, it's mercy. Okay, we've considered heaven's test. Now we think about heaven's provision. We come to our second scene, heaven's provision. Philip failed us. Now Andrew steps up. Look at the text, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew comes forth and says, We have bread, but it's barley enough for us. <laughs> Dad joke. There it is, standing O. No, Andrew, Andrew actually gives Jesus something he can work with. And it's not so much the bread or the fish, but faith. Notice Jesus doesn't call on Andrew, and yet Andrew comes forward. He steps forth with what little he's found. He does so, I think, in faith. It's not perfect faith either. He says, what are, we, what are they for so many? Maybe Andrew is remembering Jesus turning water into wine. Six stars, six stars, 150 gallons, 150 gallons. Like, that kind of makes sense. This five loaves, two fish to feed 10, 15, 20,000? I don't know, Jesus. This is all we've got. What are they for so many? How will you be able to do it? Jesus doesn't always answer our questions, but he always calls us to trust. Limited by our resources. They're his resources. How do you think the boy ended up with five loaves and two fish? How do you think Andrew found him? God supplied it all. He moves according to his own goodness and power for the good of his people. I wonder how many of us handicap our own ministry because we think God can't use our limited resources. I can't host because my house is too small. I can't invite that family over because I'm poor. They're used to eating well. I have such little time to disciple or counsel. I have such little money to give. Brothers and sisters, God is in the habit of doing a lot with a little. He doesn't need any loaves or fish. He doesn't need the disciples. He doesn't need us, and yet he invites us into the work that he himself is doing. Right? With a small home and a little faith, you can bless a member or a neighbor. With a mustard seed of faith and a window of time in your car, you can call another member to check on them and pray for them. 
with some ramen or a cup of water, you can host that lighting in the bread that is the word of God. God has given you all that you need right now, not only to meet your needs, but the needs of others. If he thought you needed more to do ministry, he'd give it to you. Think about that boy. How do you think he felt after his food was used for the miracle? Do you think he grew up 20 years from then resentful of the fact that he lost five loaves and two fish? How about the disciples? Jesus will use their little faith in their hands to bless the crowds and them. Text goes on, verse 10. Jesus responds to Andrew bringing this forward, saying, how will this be enough? Jesus says, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. Like, Jesus, this is all we've got. I don't know if that's enough. Have everyone get seated. This brings me back to my mind, chapter 2 at the wedding, where Mary tells the servants, do what he says. Okay, the disciples see 20,000 hungry people. They see five loaves, two fish. But through this test, they're beginning to see Jesus. He tells them to seat the people, and they do. Like, I don't know how he's going to provide, but he always does. When he says, move overseas or to that city or plant this church or move into that part of town or open up your home or preach, we do it. When he says, we sit down, be humble. Jesus, and don't miss this, he's the one that does the heavy lifting here. It's why he's high and exalted on the mountain, and yet he enlists his people. The disciples prepare the people, they serve the food, they do cleanup. Imagine if the disciples scoffed at their job. Seating people is beneath me. Passing out food is below my calling. I'm too skilled or educated to pick up leftovers. I'm too important to greet or set up or tear down or help with the kids. I want to be high on the mountain. Brothers and sisters, there are no unimportant jobs in the church. Every job here is above us because we are in by grace. And we all work together from setup to slides to leading the singing to service leading. We all work together so that the preaching of the word might go forth. Where we sit like the people believing that Jesus himself enthroned in heaven is feeding us and caring for our needs. We all work together in faith that Jesus Christ right now is meeting our needs. Brothers and sisters, are you serving in the church? Perhaps more importantly, do you realize that whatever job you're doing on Sunday morning is the preaching of the word that Jesus might feed his people? The fact that Jesus enlists us in the ministry is an act of mercy. Jesus goes on. The text goes on, verse 11, then Jesus took the loaves. After giving thanks, he's thanking God because God provided so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told the disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. Jesus here does what only God can do. He feeds the masses through a miracle. Notice in particular how lavish Jesus is in his provision. He doesn't just give everyone enough to make it by. Like, this will hold you over till you can get back in town. Maybe somebody can actually help you there. 
Verse 11, everyone eats as much as they wanted. Verse 12, everyone was full. The disciples then each with a basket collect and fill them. Notice Jesus started with five loaves and two fish. He feeds something like 20,000 people until everyone's full, satisfied. They've had more than enough. And then they end up with more than they started with. Jesus is sufficient to satisfy the needs of his people and more. He is and has more than we need. He is enough. Heaven, he meets the needs of his people, both physical and spiritual. Again, brothers and sisters, if you have an unmet need, it's because God is withholding it that you might have more of him or it's not actually a need. I promise you, God loves meeting the needs of his people. As a father, when I'm not irritated, at least, apparently, I love lavishing things on my kids. I love seeing their joy come complete. How much more do you think God who made us, who purchased us with the price of his son, how much more do you think he loves to give his children what they need? He didn't spare his own son, Paul says, Romans 8.32. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Our problem is we tend to think that God is only concerned with some things, or we tend to confuse desires with needs. We think we need this kind of job or relationship or health or home. We think we need this kind of financial freedom or retirement setup. We think we need this lifestyle. God knows what we need, and he supplies it. Typically, he gives us more than we need. I promise you not one of us will get to heaven to find out that God was withholding to us. You will not stand before the throne and think stingy. Hands, when you come to understand that our entire lives are nothing but the history of God's faithfulness to us, we will not accuse him of being withholding. We will be overwhelmed at his lavish grace, at his matchless kindness. Oftentimes not giving us what we desire because he was protecting us. Giving us more of what we need, preparing us for heaven, actually fulfilling our joy. He is rich in his love and resources. Again, as a father of four, one thing that you realize as you start having multiple kids is that there's a competition for your resources, for your time, for your affection. I can only play with so many kids at one time. They pick up on this. Right? With God, it's not a zero-sum game for his riches. If he blesses this child of his, it doesn't mean that he's withholding from you. It doesn't mean that he's now lacking. Jesus is sufficient to meet all our needs. And not just the physical. Don't miss this. He indeed meets our physical needs, but he does so. We'll see this later in John chapter 6. He does so as a sign. The people were supposed to lift their gazes up to heaven and see their need for eternal life. They were to see that he's the one that's been sent from heaven that gives eternal life. We are to feast upon him that we never go hungry again. Now the problem is, they don't really... Heaven's test and his provision, now we consider our last scene, heaven's king. You see, if you only understand half of your need or part of your need, it's going to distort the way that you think about Christ. Verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who is dots together. Okay, they confess that he is the prophet. 
You'll recall from John chapter 1 that the religious leader sent an envoy to John the Baptist. One of the questions they had for him was whether or not he was the prophet. Israel is anticipating the coming of the prophet. This is because Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So the people are thinking this water-turning, bread-making, death-stopping, lame-raising man just might be the prophet. Like, not a prophet, the prophet. Not someone with just a portion of the Spirit, but the one on whom he rests without measure. They're thinking this is God's end-time prophet. And the crowds actually speak better than they realize because they confess that he's the prophet who's come into the world. You see, what makes a prophet a prophet is that they speak God's word. What makes Jesus the prophet is that he is God's word. John 1.1, he's descended not just from the mountain, but from heaven. Jesus is the prophet, yes, but not just a prophet. And this is what they miss. Jesus is priest. You recall that it's the time of Passover. This is a reminder to Israel that they were once enslaved under Egypt, that God, they're in covenant relationship with him. Israel would celebrate this annually through the Passover. Because the reason that God could bring them out is because he passed over their sins. Lambs or goats were slaughtered on behalf of the people. You see, the people miss that Jesus is a priest. Notice there's no recognition or repentance or confession of sin here. They recognize he's the prophet and that he's the king, but because they misunderstand that he's the priest, they don't understand what kind of king he is. Verse 15, therefore when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now here's again what you need to think about Passover. Passover for Israel, again it's a holiday, not just a religious holiday, but a national holiday. When they think Passover, the word that comes to their mind is probably freedom, okay? So as you're thinking about Passover, you might take 4th of July and Christmas and combine them. If they're already combined in your mind, you should (laughs) detach them. But in their minds, they're recalling Israel's history where God brought them out from bondage, where God made them free in their own land. They're thinking about the prophecies of God's Messiah, the prophet coming into the world, Israel's king, who would set them free once again from their captors. So when they see the sign, they think our time for freedom has come. If he could feed the masses with five loaves, think about what he could do with 5,000 men. They're thinking that time has come to overthrow Rome. It's time to take Jerusalem. Our king is here. They're right that the king has come, but they misunderstand the nature of his kingdom. Freedom, yes, but from sin first, their own sin included. Jesus is the king, yes, but not in the way they'd like him to be king. He'll be enthroned in a way that no one would expect. The kingdom is here, yes, but not in the way they would choose. More than that, brothers and sisters, Jesus does not make, need any man to make him king. He's not the kind of king that you campaign for or vote for. As the son of God, he's king by right. As the son of man, God appoints him as king by virtue of his death and resurrection. Before him one day, every knee will bow and tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
regardless of who's ruling in Jerusalem or D.C. for that matter. You see, the proper response to Jesus, the king, is worship. Tense of sin. They see the king, they think he's here to give me what I want. Jesus will not be some puppet for their or our political revolution. He will not bow to the will of the people, to the ethic of the culture. Don't think that because Jesus meets our needs, he's a genie to grant our every wish. Proper response is faith and repentance. And here's what should check us. You can get Jesus mostly right. Prophet, come into the world, the Messianic king, and still be wrong in the way you respond to him. Confessing some of the right things about Christ doesn't mean you trust Jesus. Calling him the king doesn't mean you're in his kingdom. Reading his Bible doesn't mean that his word is abiding inside of you. We should have a proper distrust of our own flesh, as our flesh would love us to think that we're following King Jesus and really we're following ourselves or something that the culture has propped up. This will be clear later in John 6. As most of the people there, including some of the disciples, will turn away from Christ. They turn away from him because his words are too hard. And yet it's on the other side of hard word and trial that we get more of Jesus. The true prophet, one whose kingdom is without sin or end, he is worthy of our trust. He cares for our needs, both physical and spiritual, and his actions, both of his actions on the mountain prove it. He feeds the people first that they might see his goodness and power and come to trust in him. We see the way that he provides for his people. He's trustworthy. He also flees from the people when they would tempt him with a false kingdom. That is an act of love toward us. If Christ took Jerusalem in revolt, we would not have his righteousness. We would be dead in our sins. Jesus was thinking about the will of the Father and the good of his people at this moment. You see, we need a king who comes not in force, but one who would be hung on our behalf, and that is Jesus. It's by his death as a Passover lamb that we are set free and granted interest into his kingdom. He truly is the king who cares. If you're visiting us this morning and you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, we hope more than anything else that you would see that Jesus indeed is the king, that he is the creator, that God made you, and yet we have rebelled against him in his goodness. God then in his love and kindness sent his son, his own son, to live on our behalf and to die for our sins. It's actually precisely through you now to join his kingdom. He invites you. It's a gift. Again, if you're visiting, you're not a Christian, we would love to chat with you after the service about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just find any one of our members. We Christians, we know that God's love and provision did not stop at the cross or the resurrection. He provides for all of our needs in Christ. It's not always miraculous. It's often not. But God is never late and he never lacks. He always gives what we need. Most importantly, he gives us himself without measure. 
I would encourage you even over lunch or later on this evening with other members to talk about, especially with saints who've been walking with the Lord longer, how have you seen God's faithfulness to you over the years? How has this proven to be true? That Jesus is all that you need and provides all that you need. You see, Jesus met some of the needs on the crowd of that mountain. He wanted to meet them all. But rather than trusting him for life, they sought to use him for their own gain. Jesus, through the text, invites us to trust him, to rely upon him, to call upon his fast, past faithfulness where heaven's king hung in the stead of ruined sinners like us. Why? That we might feast with him forever. Do you believe that Jesus meets your every need? Do you trust him? It's as we are about to sing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus says the Lord. What true words.